Hello and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Today, we will talk with Annika Siegfried, a seasoned Nordic ECM banker. Annika has 25 years experience in equity capital markets, having advised companies and shareholders at investment banks Merrill Lynch, Carnegie, ABG, and Nordea. Now, she's an independent advisor and board member. It's safe to say, Annika has been at the center of more IPOs than most of us will ever be. The Nordic markets are interesting because they punch above their weight in terms of IPO volumes. During the last five years, the Nordics represented 23% of all European IPO volumes versus a Nordic weight of only 12% in the MSCI Europe index. The Nordics also has an overweight of family-owned companies listing on the stock exchange, and Annika will share with us her experience working with such companies. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not an investment recommendation, and that Amundsen Investment Management and the participants on this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Annika, thank you very much for being on the show today. We're very happy to have you. It's a pleasure that um, you can participate to this podcast. And maybe we should start by letting you introducing yourself, please. Yes. So my name is Annika Siegfried. I'm 48 years old. I'm Swedish. And I have, I would say, plus 25 years of experience in investment banking. And since 2002, I have worked especially with equity capital markets transactions called ECM in a shorter version. And uh, I worked at both Nordic and international banks. Until recently, I was the global head of ECM at Nordea. Nowadays, I'm working as an independent advisor, and that is working together with companies in ECM transactions, advising the board, the management team, and the owners on the transactions and the journey, uh, for example, for an IPO. ECM includes several products. The largest product is the IPO, the initial public offering. It's new issues, it's uh, accelerated book buildings, it's placings, it's private placements, it's share buybacks. So everything basically that includes the share in a corporate finance transaction. And you have mostly um, an experience with the Nordic markets. Uh, obviously, you, you say you're Swedish, you work with, uh, with Nordia. You have had a bit of a more European experience with IPOs and, and ECM in general. Yeah, so primarily I worked on Nordic transactions, but as working at Nordea, we also had exposures in some of the European companies where we also then were participating in, for example, uh, Deutsche Bank rights issue, etc. But the focus has always been on Nordic companies and Nordic transactions. And obviously the topic of the um, podcast today will be to talk about you know, advising family-owned companies uh, with respect to their capital market considerations and IPOs. Obviously, Sweden and the Nordics, but also Europe, Germany, for example, homes of a lot of family-owned companies. And, and we tend to see them at some point in their development path thinking about IPOing and becoming public. Do you have yourself a lot of experience with those family-owned companies? If you can just tell us a bit more about your background from that respect. Yes, I have experience from working with family-owned businesses. However, I would say that the majority of the IPOs in the Nordic market, if you look historically, have been private equity-backed transactions. But I've done a number of kind of family-owned or entrepreneurial slash founder-led transactions as well. 
there could also be a situation where you have a family who have teamed up together with a private equity and then pursuing an IPO as an exit. For example, Oriflame that we IPO'd in 2004 is a very good example of, of such a transaction where then the private equity owner, of course, exits in full over time, but the family stays as an owner in the company. Pure family-owned transaction, for example, Mekonoman is a good example of that. That's very long back in time. Otherwise, you know, entrepreneurial founder-led transactions like Tradeabler, Volati, Better Collective, etc. But I would say the majority of the transactions executed have been by private equity owners. Obviously, and the PE financial sponsors are very active in the Nordics, but not only, and they've been... A- the main source of IPOs for the last couple of years, for sure. But we still see a lot of those that you mentioned, founder-led or family-led companies also being an important source of IPOs in Europe. I guess an interesting question is when those family-owned companies start thinking about being public, uh, what's happening internally or at the ownership level, generational level, so that timing is right for those companies to start asking themselves the question, should we start being public? Yes, it's a very good question. I think it could be, you know, one or several reasons for a private company or family-owned company to pursue an IPO. One could be that they feel that they need to to have some risk sharing. They have, you know, all the egg in one basket, the wealth that they have in the same company. And this is a way for them to sell some shares and get some more, you know, lower the risk of not having it in only one company. Another thing could be that they are looking to expand, you know, acquire a company or a more aggressive strategy of growth where they need to access the capital market for funding, i.e. doing a new issue, bringing in new investors to continue the journey of growth. I think another thing could be as well a way of succession in the company, you know, that there is maybe one or two generations that have led the company and there is no natural person internally in the family to take on, you know, the, the company's forward journey and thereby also bringing in new people in the company, but also then expanding the ownership base for the company's next step in their strategy. Another thing could be that if it is a product or a service that is customer-oriented, that this is a way to also invite their customers to be part of a profitable forward journey, i.e. taking part of the profits and, and dividend generation in the company. So basically profit sharing. But it could also be with the employees that they want to invite the employees to be more part of the sharing of the profit and the returns in the future. It could also be ingredients like increased transparency, marketing of the company, that it's easier to employ, you know, good people if the company is publicly listed and have more, would I say, public uh, exposure and public knowledge. All those very valid uh, reasons, obviously, to consider um, a listing. Do you think any of them are easier to sell to the market or a market would be more receptive to some of those different considerations as opposed to, for example, you know, raising funds for growth and M&A versus just monetizing some of your wealth as a family? How did you perceive the market reactions to those family-owned companies' IPOs? Yeah, overall, in a transaction, in an IPO, the kind of key thing is the investment case. There's so many factors that, that come into play when you look at the company or looking to buy a stock. I think the most important thing is that the investor like the story, the investment case. But I think some investors clearly express that they like if the owners are of flesh and blood, so to speak, because they also then share, of course, more of the risk in the company. Primarily the financial risk going forward, but also that they take more responsibility for the operational risk in the company if they also have a lot of financial exposure to the performance of the company. 
But I think the investment case overall is always the kind of the prime. But of course, having some flesh and blood in the ownership is always a plus, I would say. And anything which um, might put this family on company in a situation where they're not sure if the IPO is the right step for the company. I mean, we know a lot of those companies when they come to the market, they might suffer with low liquidity or low visibility from the market because, you know, it always takes a bit of time to be known, to be properly covered. And we know there's been a trend as well, unfortunately, over the last few years of disequitization with just fewer and fewer listed companies, right? Is it a worry and a concern for those family-owned companies that actually being public might not be the solution from a liquidity perspective or the right step for them and they might just consider the private sale or the financial sponsor's exit? No, but I think this is the key question. The first question you will have to ask a client coming for you asking for advice is that why do you want to pursue an IPO? What is the prime reason? Is it because you want to sell some shares, i.e. part of the ownership base or one owner want to do a full or partial exit? And that is the reason for the IPO? Or is it because you want to access the capital market for funding? I had a case once, a company that came to us, they had no need for primary and there were no one in the ownership base that wanted to sell some stock. And of course, that is a very complicated situation to do a public listing. So I think that is the prime reason in this why to do an IPO. I think many companies have it as a bit of a self-fulfillment that you just think that the end game for the company is to do an IPO. But you always have to come back to the core question. Why do you want to do an IPO? What is the prime reason? And how early do you have to get an answer to this question before actually pulling the trigger and say, okay, we agree, we want to do IPO. Let's work on that, right? What, what would be the typical timeline for family-owned companies or in general? But maybe there's some differences with family-owned companies as well, right? Yeah, no, but I think with a family-owned company, I mean, this is one of the first things that you discuss, you know, what is the reason? Because that is also the key basis for kind of the equity story to tell the market why they are pursuing a public market route. I think with the private equity companies, it is not a question you have to ask because that's, of course, implicit in the whole model of the private equity ownership that the exit is the end game for their ownership journey in the company. And over the years, did you see an increasing competition again from other alternative or private alternatives to those companies or for those shareholders? I mentioned the private equity landscape has changed a lot over the years. We've seen more and more funds setting up some bigger funds. I will assume that this has increasingly been a very good alternative for those companies. While a couple of years ago, they, you know, maybe the IP was the only route, right? So I guess convincing those companies to be public has been just more competitive versus alternatives, right? Of course, this is totally linked to what advice you give where you are in the cycle. I mean, going to a company right now and saying, you know, we would pursue a public market listing in, for example, Q2. I think that's a challenging message to deliver to the client because it has low probability and thereby low credibility. So I think that really goes with the looking at where we are in the capital market cycle. But I would say that most of the clients, we are always considering alternative routes. Sometimes, you know, an IPO is actually a dual track process that ends up in the public market. And sometimes when you see an M&A transaction, it could have been a parallel track with an IPO. That is not described or visible to the market, you know, what the kind of process is ending up to the final transaction. But I would say many of the transactions are either full-blown dual track, side by side, or sequential, that you maybe start with an M&A, you know, you're not sufficient with that uh, evaluation indications or any other aspects of that process, and thereby you, you tap over to the public market or vice versa. So, of course, we are exploring different alternatives, which is initial public offering, a trade sale or a secondary sale, or if you want to sell to private equity. 
your job and the value of, you know, you're getting involved in this IPO process will obviously be to have the company being IPO ready. Looking at such IPO candidates, what will be the most important work stream that you think the company will have to address and work hard to get to this point of being IPO ready? And again, keeping in mind that the company will be owned by a family, it's been private for years, you know, as opposed to, again, some private equity owned companies where maybe the sponsors have been already helping them ahead of the IPO timing to, to be ready and to be more, let's say, institutionalized, right? But I would guess some other family-owned companies will not be to that point of, you know, already investor ready, right? So I, I guess the work stream would be different as well. That's absolutely correct. I think private equity owners, they do prepare the companies for a final exit, whatever that is, already when acquiring the company. A private company or a family-owned company have not, you know, done any of these preparations normally when they start the IPO process. So the IPO readiness process overall is kind of the biggest task for a family-owned company going into this process. It is everything with uh, complying with all the listing requirements, the policies, the documentation of internal reporting and compliance, and the, the overall due diligence is extremely time-consuming for the company to prepare in such a short time. So that is a very, very big uh, part of the project. I think the second you know, biggest challenge for a family-owned company is to understand and get used to communicating with a totally new stakeholder base, i.e. the analysts and the investors in the capital markets. Because when you are, for example, in a, in a family-owned company, most often you have a very strong culture, you have an enthusiasm and you talk to your employees, to maybe your suppliers and your customers and explain the company in a very different manner that when you have to explain the company for the stakeholders in the capital market. And that process of understanding why you have to communicate in a different manner and that maybe losing a bit of that uh, cultural aspect of your communication is a big change for the management team when they approach the first stages or you know getting in contact with the capital market participants. Yeah, this communication, I guess, is being public. You obviously have much more communication requirements, uh, but also when um, when you think about how you talk to the markets, how you guide the market, right? Fin- even financial guidance, uh, which public companies have to um, guide the market to some extent. And it seems to me that there's a different level of, of details if company will be family-owned or actually a financial sponsor. And I don't know. Is that something you also noticed and, and you're well aware of? I don't think I totally agree on that. What I tend to think and feel is that the family-owned companies, you know, are more afraid of the scrutinization that they are approaching, that they don't want to under-deliver, that they don't want to fail in their communication or, you know, over-promise and not deliver on that. So I think they are more prudent in general of actually saying what they think they are able to deliver and uh, maybe that the market uh, view that as less communication. But I wouldn't say that. They are very honest and very clear normally, but maybe they are more cautious and conscious about that they want to deliver on exactly what they are saying because that's in a way what they are used to when they are communicating. And then, of course, I mean, the whole process of the IPO is that they have to put down a very detailed business model. That business model forms the basis of the board's decision on the financial targets. So it is a kind of a very long process of finally setting the financial targets. And I think that work is extremely important in an IPO because if you have done that very thoroughly, 
most likely you will also deliver on your financial targets. But if you have kind of rushed through that process, maybe then in the short term, it's going to be more deviation to what you have said to the market than if you have a very detailed business model that kind of forms the platform for the financial targets. Yeah, makes sense. So once you've worked with your clients on those very important questions, on the equity story, on the financial model, on the IPO rational, when is then the timing right to actually go out in the markets? I guess there's some internal factors, external factors as well. But you know, how are you thinking about giving this advice to the board? And what will be the key considerations? So that's absolutely correct. You have these external factors. Of course, they are out of your control, but these are monitored very closely by the advisor during the whole process to see that there is a window when it's, you know, a good time to try to approach the market. The internal factors are that you have to be ready. You have to be compliant. You have to have gone through all the processes that you deal against work streams that are required to actually launch transactions. But then also what is very important is that you want to come off in the public market on a fairly good trading, i.e. how the company is performing. So it's very important that you don't lose your eye on the ball during this process because the management team is very tied up executing on the IPO process. That I think the biggest risk is that the performance of the company during this time may not have the same focus because they are so occupied with the IPO process. So it's very important that you feel that you have a good trading going into the market and also that you foresee that the coming quarters are trending in the same direction. So I think the decision to launch is, of course, of the external factors at that point in time, but also that we feel that everything internally is in order, but also that we feel that we can deliver, given what we know today, in a good trading going forward in the near-term perspective. And that you would normally then go out with an ITF, the intention to flow. That is not the must if you don't have uh, listed um, securities, but most companies do that today. And then you start pre-marketing, and that is when the research analysts in the syndicate go out and market the story to the capital market investors. And obviously, you would be meeting a few investors ahead of this ITF to test a bit the appetite because, again, you're taking a risk of things you don't control is, you know, how will be the market when you go live? And I guess you would like to get some visibility of the investor's interest, right? How early you will engage with investors and how can you actually minimize this exposure to the market when you go live? Do you have some technical tools or, or you know, in your toolbox to actually make sure the IPO process is not derailed by the, the market? That is absolutely correct. They are, uh, you know, sequential interactions with investors ahead of going out publicly with your transaction in order to get, uh, you know, feedback on the equity story, but also indications very rough on valuation, but also that there is interest in the capital market or among investors to actually invest in the company, even though there may not be firm commitments. So, of course, we start doing this when we have kind of the equity story framework uh, up and running at the first interaction we call the early look, which is basically an introduction to the company, to a very limited group of investors, often locally and internationally, to get feedback on the equity story and, and to see whether there is an overall interest of the company. And then as we go along and have more detail on financials and financial targets, we have more interactions with investors before we come to the intention to float. And I think it's really important uh, that the transaction is well anchored either by cornerstone indication, which is firm commitments, or by, you know, soft commitments in an active process before you launch. Because that is, of course, minimizing the transaction risk as, as much as possible, but also to feel that we have a good investor base that have interest for the company and most likely will be the shareholders of the company once listed. And also that there is a good mix of investors, both locally 
uh, and internationally, but also long only than a hedge fund. So you can feel that there is a good foundation of a potential shareholder base before you press the button. And when you look back at all the um, investor feedback, again, of some of those IPOs which happen and those premium companies coming to the market, when it comes to the um, governance model, right? Because most likely some of those companies, you will have obviously a strong shareholder family and, and potentially some of those family members will also be part of the uh, management and uh, senior executives, right? So when you look at the investor feedback again during those IPO process, any recurring points when it comes to the governance model and and how to best align the interests of those new investors with uh, the current uh, family shareholders? Yeah. But first, I would say investors in general like to see that, you know, the family is still highly engaged with the company and, and it can be both in the management team, but also on the board, that they still are, you know, with their knowledge, experience and everything that they have learned during the journey to kind of take the company to the point where it is now, it's very important. And I would say the most important thing is how you communicate about the family's long-term intentions as a shareholder, because the market does not like surprises. And if suddenly the family would say that now we are, you know, going to sell X percent of the company, if that has not been expected by the market, I would say that that would have been very disappointment use for the market. So what we tend to guide on or advise the families is that be very clear on how you see yourself in the short term and the long term as owners of the company. Because investors want to know, is this the only liquidity event in the foreseeable future, i.e. they are not going to sell any more shares? Or is this the first step, for example, of a two-step process where they first list the company, sell a part of the shares, and then maybe sell down to, let's say, 50-55%, keeping the control but decreasing free flow. I think it's also very important for investors to understand whether the family has the intention to continue to be in control of the company, because that is, of course, very important uh, given the strategy that is presented at IPO. Well, I think it's a very positive signal, obviously, if the family stay, right? At least as a transition phase, because obviously showing support and uh, align interest on the case. But eventually you might have some investors saying, listen, I like a lot your business. But, you know, if you keep owning 60%, free float is limited. It's more difficult to build uh, a bigger position, obviously, right? So it can also be a bit of um, the negative over time if this free float is not increasing, right? So you have probably to find balance between what you give to the market and what the family keeps over time, right? Absolutely. And that, of course, depends on the size of the company. If it is a very large company, because we look at also free float in absolute time, we want to make sure that the share is going to trade with sufficient liquidity. But that, of course, uh, it depends on the size of the company and then the size of the free float in percentage and in absolute terms. That makes sense. And, and when it comes to the role of the family in the company, so not as a shareholder, but as management, I guess the question, but it's like any founder-led companies, right? The founder is going to ask himself, do I want to stay um, you know, CEO and, and lead the company, um, the new chapter as, as a public company, or should I actually quit or change role because CEO of a public company is not necessarily the same role and skills required than you know, CEO of a private company? I would think so. Is that a question that, again, you need to address very early in the IPO preparation? And do you see a lot of those management changes before an IPO or, or not really? My experience from the transactions that I have done is that I don't see very often changes on the management level in the companies. It could be that they IPO with, for example, one of the founders or you know, the family member as a CEO. And then over time, there is a succession to maybe a non-family person taking over as 
uh, a CEO. But at IPO, I would say I don't see that it has been that many changes. However, on the board level, that's where we see the, the kind of most changes going into an IPO process, because most likely the whole family sits on the board or all the members of the family. And in order to comply with the listing requirements and the regulatory requirements, you need to have another type of composition of the board going to the public market. And this varies a bit uh, between jurisdictions, but in all jurisdictions, it is that you need to have independency on the board. So that is what we often see is that you bring in independent board members in order to comply with the requirements. Another question I always ask myself as well is how well the management, if it's not again you know, family members, but is actually incentivized to work for the best IPO outcome possible for its shareholders, so, so the family members. In the private equity model, we all know it's very well set and, and there's a very strong incentive structure for management to allow the best exit for their financial sponsor at IPO, but also after IPO over time. For private family-owned companies, certainly it must be different, right? What's your experience with respect to management incentives around the IPO, after the IPO, when again, the company is owned by a family? Yes, very good question. I mean, the family, if they are on the management team, they are, of course, incentivized by the offer holding quite a large stake in the company on an individual basis. The rest of the management sometimes have no incentives in place. And then the question arises that are you to put in place an incentive program ahead of the IPO or are you going to IPO the company and then let the new shareholders coming in participate on the general meeting and vote through the incentive program? I mean, we can see both of these two happening. I think the parameters to keep in mind if you do it ahead of the IPO is, of course, to look at the cost of the program that is that going to be the cost occurred in the company post-IPO and then the dilution. So how many percent would that dilute if it is an incentive program with, with the stock included? So what we do is that if we have an incentive program putting in place ahead of IPO, you have to be very careful with these two parameters not becoming an issue at IPO or post-IPO. This notion of... Um... IPO bonus, we see that sometimes. Obviously, as you said, right, the, the IPO process can be very intense, requires a lot of internal resources. And I heard someone telling me that, you know, a successful IPO is when you don't lose any employees during the IPO process. Do you think setting up an IPO bonus is, is the right thing to do to incentivize management during this, this long process? Or you would rather advise them to actually, you know, look at after the IPO, allowing shares and creating a new long-term incentive schemes, but not necessarily at the point of the IPO? Yes, very good question. The most important thing with all these questions of incentivizing management team, etc., is transparency. So investors see exactly what the costs are and who's going to carry the cost for these bonuses or incentive programs. If you ask me personally, I would not recommend to have IPO bonuses because I think it creates a discussion point in the meetings that is unnecessary. We often see in the media when we do IPOs that the journalists like to really put attention to what a wealth uh, will be with certain individuals in the company post-IPO given their shareholding pre-IPO or post-IPO. So I would say to take away as many things as possible that create unnecessary disturbance to the process, I think is good. But if you want to have that schemes in place, it's just to be very transparent with everything that you do, who's going to carry the cost for these type of programs. 
Obviously, transparency is important, and you mentioned public scrutiny as well. Uh, so just going back maybe to this cultural challenge or changes, right, from private to public, what you usually see as the biggest chance to overcome for those private companies when it comes to interacting with the public markets, right, and, and facing this public scrutiny? Where do you see them having the most difficult to uh, make internal changes and comply with the rest of the market? I think the biggest challenge is to accept that they are being scrutinized uh, by the market on a quarterly basis. Uh, most likely before the IPO, they didn't steer the company or evaluate on a quarterly basis their actions and the result of their actions. I think that is the biggest change and the biggest challenge is to understand that they are now being analyzed and scrutinized on a quarterly basis, which is for many companies a very short time frame. And do you feel that those companies over time managed to build the right relationship with their new investors? I mean, there's a lot of I mean, we all know your shelter base can change quite a lot and can be quite fragmented or not. By the way, some markets will have much more concentrated shelter by nature of the institutional base locally. And I think the Nordics at least have the luxury uh, to have very strong local owners as well. But do you feel that the management over time has a good understanding of their new investors and that this new relationship is strong and stronger over time? Or that's always a bit of, um, of a surprise to them how fragmented and how little they know their shelters? I think this is very important. I think very often the advisors do the IPO and that the project's over and, you know, the company is being let out on their own on the public market journey. But it's very important to remember that the IPO is just the beginning for the company on the public market journey. We once had a company that we IPO'd that was going to release the first quarter results. The results were good. But in the CEO word, in the quarterly result, it was a sentence that was interpreted in the wrong way by the market, which created a very bad situation that was not intentional and it was basically incorrect in a way because the phrasing of that word was not the way that the company thought that the market was going to interpret what it was said. That is an example of that I think it's very important that the advisors stay on board and help the company in the first quarters when they are to report the results with exactly the wording, the phrasing, and what the analysts and the investors are focusing on and why they're asking certain questions. So with, for example, uh, one of the companies that I worked uh, with in IPO, we actually helped them for many, many years. It was the management team that wanted our discussion. And they felt very good about going out with the results because they had discussed it through with us first not because they changed anything, but just to understand what the market was focusing on and they could explain the positives and potentially the negatives in the result in a good way or in a way that was understood better by the market. So I think that my advice to advisors is actually to stay on for a while and help the company with the first quarter result because it's so important that you get off in a good way with the market. And then over time, of course, you get very used to these conversations and you are well prepared to do it on your own. But I think in the first quarter result, it's very good to have some proper guidance and help. I've heard that a lot. And I think advisors should play an important role here because then the management will come back to you and complain how come the market doesn't like our numbers. We just beaten them, right? And I've seen so many um, cases where, you know, management was very frustrated because very strong earnings, numbers, even guidance and the market reacting negatively. And I think it's back to the semantic, but also back to, you know, what you actually communicated during your marketing, right? And there's this example where one CEO told me that the first mistake they did in their first quarterly call was actually to take question of the sell-side analyst, not in any order, and they just let the most bearish analyst asking the first question. 
which apparently set the tone negatively during the earnings call and the shares were diving during the earnings call. And, and he told me next time we just, you know, let the most bullish analysts asking their first question. Yes. And I also think a good way to build credibility and uh, confidence with the market is also when you present your results that you say, these aspects are in line with our expectations, but this did not end up in line with our expectations. Why? And what have we done to solve it? Or, you know, what initiatives have we put in place to avoid this happening again or something? To be very transparent, because often you see that the management teams come out and only talk about the good news. But it's as important to highlight things that, according to your own measures, have not ended up in an area that you wanted, what you have done to solve it or to change it. So I think we also encourage the management teams to be very objective when they are presenting their results. What do you tell them about hiring uh, an investor relation? Again, based on our experience, sometimes the IIR is onboarded before or during the IPO process, sometimes it's after, which I always feel is a bit too late because effectively, you know, it's much better to have an IR being there when you pitch and you tell your equity story and start knowing the investors who will be on your shelter base day one. And that helps a lot as well, the aftermarket liquidity and good coverage, because too often we see those new companies coming to the market and probably not thinking that it's so important to talk early to the market. And that will effectively impact negatively the liquidity and so forth and can create a negative vicious cycle, unfortunately, right? Do, do you have a bit of a view on when is the right timing to hire IR? Yeah, I mean, according to the rules, you need to have someone appointed as an IR, but it could also be the CFO, for example, in a smaller company. I think you are absolutely right. I think it's good if you have a person taking on the IR role, that that person is being hired and coming to the company during the IPO processes and then learn the company, the history, and work together with the management team. At IPO, it's very much the CEO and the CFO and potentially another person of the management team that are the key persons in marketing the story and meeting investors. And maybe during the first quarter, second quarter, etc. But once the investors on the market get to know the company very well, it's good if you can lift some of these investor interactions to the IR, because that also leaves more time for the CEO and CFO to do other things, of course, rather than going on roadshow after every quarterly results for, you know, a couple of days seeing investors, which is very time consuming. So I think it's very good that you have an IR that knows the business very well and can take quite many of these investor interactions. And in order to know the company very well, the best way to get to know the company is to be part of the IPO process. How long will you um, stay as an advisor after the IPO typically? When will your job basically stop or the client not expecting you to get involved anymore? Well, as the banker, when you have concluded the transaction, basically that project is over. But if it is a private equity, of course, there could be more shares to be sold in secondary sell downs over time. So, of course, you stay in very close contact with both the company and the owners. I would say as an advisor, when I work, we tend to work very closely with the companies uh, post-IPO, as I explained to you both ahead of the results, helping them with communication if they wanted, but also advising them on several topics that arises during the time as a listed company. But the project is such, of course, is over. But I would say that the, a good advisor, I would think, stays up and, uh, you know, keep a very close contact with the company. And it, it's also important to say that for every company, there's going to be an occasion where you have to communicate some bad news. And I think if you then have advisors that are, you know, constantly updated your progress of the story about the company could also be very helpful in such a situation 
when you have to communicate a problem or less good news to the market, because that is a situation when everybody needs help, I would say. And most likely, you know, that would be the same advisor if the company thinking about an M&A or issuing equity now that they have a currency, right? So we see a lot of those family companies actually using the IPO as, again, an accelerator for the next growth phase, right? Or, as you said, providing more liquidity as well. So I would guess this relationship you establish at IPO is just actually going to stay and, and there would be more occasions to actually um, build on it and, and other opportunities to advise a company, right? Yes, that's totally correct. If you look at all those advisory roles doing an IPO process, again, we know there's advisors for everything uh, on the legal side, obviously, on the accounting, financial side, communication side. Where do you feel maybe there's, there's still a need or the most value-add advisory to give either to management or to the owners in, in the IPO process? Do you think today it's, it's well covered and it's a really, let's say, mature industry? Or do you still see that there's areas where things can be done better, obviously, or you know, better advise your clients? Well, uh, since I'm today working as an independent advisor to owners and management teams and, and boards in the IPO situations primarily, I would say that that role is not uh, used in every transaction. If I look at the transactions where I'm advising, and of course it can sound like I'm kind of, you know, promoting my own role, but I would say that the benefit of that is that I can prepare the clients. I can explain to the clients of the different work streams of the questions but also that the meetings will be more efficient, well understood, and I can guide them through the process in a very objective way. Because I often think and feel that the client, of course, will at some point in time feel that, you know, the advisors may say things that may be not the company's best interest. And just to explain and sort out the differences in advice and how they should think and look upon things, I think makes the process a bit more clear. But I think, you know, preparing them, explaining and guiding them through the process, I think that is a big benefit for the companies going into an IPO process because the majority of the companies have management teams that has never done an IPO before. They could be CFOs, for example, that have been part of IPOs in their previous occupations. But most of the people that work in an IPO product from the company side have never been through this process. And it's a lot of words, terminology, and the, a lot of advisors. And it's just very difficult to understand exactly why everybody's there, what does everybody do, and why do we do this, and why are they asking for this, and so on. So I think having that uh, that kind of uh, person explaining during the process, I would think is a big help for them. Yeah, and I can confirm, and we see it, and we actually feel it as well, when the management is better advised as well, because as you say, it's always a first time for them, most likely. Although sometimes when it's finished, you know, private equity owned companies, senior executive might have done some other exits and they're much more prepared as well to talk to the market and you can feel it. And sometimes family owned management companies, again, feel a bit less prepared from that respect. And we know they have a business to run in parallel as well and a lot of pressure to execute the, the IPO for their shareholders, right? So I think it's very important for those management companies to have the best advice because that will also work in the interest of their shareholders, right? Yes, I would tend to agree. Any fun facts uh, as we're coming to an end now that you would like to share with us about some, you know, war memories of fun facts during IPO roadshows that you remember and, you know, would be of interest to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, Murphy's Law, there is always something happening during an IPO process. It can be one or several challenges that you have to get through. I think uh, one of the companies where we were to do an IPO, the CEO used to go cycling in the morning. 
And we had a full day of investor meetings. And on my way to the office, he called me and he said, I'm sitting here in the office and I fell on my bike and I've broken my collarbone. So uh, how to overcome such a situation in the middle of the marketing process is, of course, uh, you know, a challenge. But we succeeded with pain relief and a lot of love and care during this process in order for him to be able to execute all these meetings with a very high level of pain. But that is also doable. You should just think when you go into a process that everything can happen and something will happen. And it's always something that happens. It can be a small issue or, you know, several issues or a large issue. But that's always the case. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was pre-COVID or Zoom, right? Now those days, those kind of uh, issues, you can actually manage them pretty well, uh, doing most of the meetings virtually, right? Yes. That was during the time where we were traveling around to see investors, all investors. If you look at all the family-owned companies, great companies, are there still private? Anyone you will uh, think should become public or would love to advise? I would say there is one company that I think the entire advising community and I would guess also the entire capital market would love to see coming public. And that's, of course, IKEA, the Swedish furniture company. That's been uh, discussed on the kind of wish list fighting for all the bankers for decades. But otherwise, in the Nordics, there are a few very interesting family-owned cases that I think would suit very well being listed in the capital markets that have extremely good equity stories for a very good basis for letting capital markets coming in, taking part of the future profit sharing in these companies that would complement the current list of companies uh, listed in the Nordics very well. And some of them also of size. I don't know why, but I was sure you would mention IKEA, obviously. I don't know if that would be an easy pitch or a difficult pitch, right? But definitely, uh, I'm sure if they tap the equity markets, uh, they'll have a lot of support globally, right? Let's see if that ever happens. I think the strong brand of that company is, of course, very interesting in that as in every company, in every case, and every IPO, you have to consider the current market circumstances for that specific IPO. But I think it is one of the world's strongest brands. And I think that is what, of course, creates the interest of having it as a public company. And hopefully they will choose Stockholm as a listing location, right? Yeah, one never know. <laughs> okay, Annika, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you sharing your experience with us, telling more about family-owned companies and the IPO process it was really, really helpful. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we'll host advisors, CEOs, CFOs, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from Annika today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you would like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact at ipostories.com.